Management. This is Mike Mayo with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group, and we're here every Saturday at 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets and the economy, and this week's visit's going to be a little shorter than usual because we have the football game coming up behind us, so we'll have a couple segments today as all, well, so I'll try and, uh, how would I say, condense things in so you can still get some benefit from this. This past week's market was... Uh, kind of interesting you know uh, week over week we were actually higher uh, after all the carryings on earlier in the week because monday was the market's worst day in four months wednesday we had its second largest gain in two months but wait thursday we had the largest gain in two months and friday was pretty much everybody taking a breather and not much going on you know what I think maybe most notable is just how much more money people have just lying around in cash. It's currently $16.5 trillion in the second quarter. So there's a lot of money just sitting out there right now looking for a place to go. And that isn't to suggest it's all coming to the stock market, no. But uh, there are people willing and interested in spending it. They just need a place to do it. So basically, why'd the market drop Monday? Well, same as last week. China concerns about their uh, Evergrande real estate deal and uh, their economy in general slowing down, uh, the tapering by the Fed and possible tax hikes. But nothing new occurred over the weekend to justify the drop. It just felt worse because things have been calm for so long. You know, with regard to an economic slowdown in China, I don't think it's likely to harm us in any significant way because the S&P revenues coming from the greater China area, and that includes both Hong Kong and Taiwan, that's only about 2% of revenues in uh, 2019, the most recent data. You know, remember, uh, our growth accelerated in the late 90s when Japan started stagnating, and back then Japan had a larger share of our GDP than China does now. China... Uh, Right today constitutes about 4% of the total value within what's called the MSCI ACWI index. That includes 50 and developed, try to get my, 50 developed and emerging markets around the world. In theory, you should have that much invested in China, but no more. That's in a global stock portfolio. So if you have 10% in emerging markets fund, though, you might want to check and see how much of your holdings is in China so you aren't uh, perhaps overexposed, according to uh, the way they see it. Now, the idea that China is the driving force behind the recent market drop, well, again, it's been so long since we had the last correction. And by the way, how long has it been since a correction or a drop or whatever you want to call it? It has nothing to do with anything. Um, there, these things, the markets don't run on clocks. So uh, the fact that it's been a while since a correction or uh, 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 anything like that, it really doesn't mean anything. But again, people get antsy about that stuff. You know, the bottom line, though, is that China is not anywhere near our largest words. And a lot of these people that are, uh, if you pardon the term, explaining the event, seem to be simply telling you what they expected all along. So making big changes to your portfolios based on that kind of analysis, 
Never a good idea. Oh, the Fed. They met this week. And Mr. Powell spoke. And the Fed said they would start reversing their stimulus programs in November and could raise interest rates next year. Now, the market reacted rather nicely to these comments uh, because a couple of reasons. One, it said they aren't doing it right now, and it looks as if they're going to ease into it. The uh, Fed's rate-setting committee um, revised its statement Wednesday to say it could start to reduce or taper its $120 billion in monthly asset purchases as soon as it's meeting in uh, the first part of November. Now, the statement said, and this is from the board as a whole, if progress continues broadly as expected, the committee judges that a moderation in the pace of asset purchases may soon be warranted, unquote. And Mr. Powell uh, made it clear at his press conference after the release of the uh, information, he said tapering is likely to start in early November and to end by mid-2022 and that we shouldn't expect any rate hikes until that tapering is done, as in late 2022, and oh, by the way, after the midterm elections at the earliest. You know, and one kind of aside, um, just looking at the data, you know, they're talking about inflation being transient. And again, I'm not suggesting that it's um, going to be going straight up, but I think it's not quite as benign as what some may be talking. They, and here's an example. The 10-year Treasury uh, last week, was 1.3%-ish. Uh, yesterday, it was 1.44%. That, you know, you say, well, gee, that's a tenth of a percent. Yeah, but on the other side, it's a 10% increase in the cost of issuing 10-year debt. So that has kind of a ripple effect, you see. And one other thing uh, related to all this uh, shutdown stuff, Nike uh, dropped a lot yesterday because uh, they had to lower their well, 2022 outlook because of prolonged production shutdowns overseas, labor shortages, and lengthy transit times. There are about 70-some-odd uh, container ships sitting off Long Beach right now just waiting to get unloaded. So it's really kind of hard to keep uh, these uh, shelves filled. Uh, for example, Costco uh, just announced that they're going to be cutting back sales on certain items, um, paper towels, uh, water bottles, etc. I don't think not so much because people are racing in to buy them again, but they can't get them. I mean, they aren't being delivered. And so you see that in a lot of stores. Um, and you can't fault the store. Uh, you, technically, you can't really fault anybody except the government who shut this down. But, you know, you, you have to be aware that these kinds of things are working their way through the system. You know, while the Evergrande situation, and Evergrande, by the way, is the name of that uh, Chinese real estate company that, uh, how would I say, kind of stretched their finances just a little bit. They said that, uh, well, while they, Evergrande, excuse me, provided an excuse for the sell-off on Monday, its financial condition has been well known for some time. It's got $300 billion in liabilities. Debt payments were supposed to come due, and there was no talk uh, as of when we did this uh, that any debt payments had been received by anyone. Now, based on what I read, I believe what happens to Evergrande in China is apply to stay mostly in China. 
because avoiding a disorderly default that would deflate property prices is China's number one priority. This is according to Lawrence Brainerd. He's chair of the Emerging Markets Panel at T.S. Lombard. He went on to add that residential real estate makes up the largest asset of the Chinese middle class, not unlike here, and a 15 to 20 percent drop in prices could trigger social unrest, he went on to add. And a sharp slowdown in the world's second largest economy is apt to have ripple effects on the global economy, but the U.S. is a relatively closed economy and is generally less susceptible to external troubles. And this, according to uh, Bank of Central Asia's daily highlights note. Tom Lee of Fundstrat uh, offered that sun, uh, the market's movement on Monday was a buying opportunity. He said, and I'm quoting, we're still in a position where ultimately stocks are going to rally hard off this because unless Evergrande is going to cause a real seismic effect on the U.S. economy, the U.S. fundamentals are in good shape, unquote. And I don't see that happening as we discussed in the prior segment. J.P. Morgan, uh, Marco Kalanovich, uh, also called the sell-off overdone. However, there's always some guy. And uh, Mike Wilson, who is uh, considered one of the biggest bears on Wall Street, he works for Morgan Stanley. He sees a destructive scenario where the S&P suffers a 20% correction as some economic indicators have started to deteriorate, unquote. Now, the good news is <laughs> stocks usually go up in October, November, and December. So you can take those words with what they're worth. You know, people are saying, you oh, know, the market's overvalued. What, do I buy? Gee, I'm not sure. You know, you buy high out of greed. You sell low out of fear, despite knowing logically that either is a very bad idea. Now, the easiest way to see that behavior in action is to track the money flow in and out of mutual funds. Our friends at Dalbar do that. And going back to early 2000, when the dot-com market had, was just really dot-coming, for lack of a better way to say it, uh, people were using their home equity to buy tech stocks. And this was right after the NASDAQ had risen. Now, this was in one year. The NASDAQ was up 85.6%. That's the biggest annual gain for a major market index ever. That was in 1999. Now, in January 2000, investors put close to $44 billion into stock mutual funds. That's according to the Investment Company Institute, and they tracked that. That was the uh, record at the time. Now, money continued to pour into those stock funds. It broke records for February and March. This is of 2000, and pushed the NASDAQ to 5,000. Well, the NASDAQ lost about half its value by October 2002. Well, it got worse. In October 2000, that was at the low for the cycle, when investors were selling stocks as fast as they could, where was all that money going? Well, it was going into bond funds. This at a time when bond rates were near record lows. And as you may recall, as we talked, uh, bonds trade opposite of what their interest rates are. So if you're issuing bonds at low rates and the rates go up, the value of your bonds is going down. On the other hand, if you have higher uh, paying bonds and, uh, well, if the rates go up, you'll, you'll still see some drop in price. They move opposite to the way that the interest rates are trending. So think about the pattern for a minute. At the top of the market, you can't seem to buy fast enough. And then about three years later at the bottom, you couldn't sell fast enough. 
repeat that over and over again until you, uh, shall we say, have eliminated your money. You know, no wonder a lot of people are unsatisfied with their investing experience. If you look over the last 20 or so years, the uh, S&P has averaged uh, an annual return uh, after inflation of around 6%. Now, if you missed the best 20 years in the market over that time, excuse me, best 20 days in the last 20 years, because you came convinced that you should sell and reinvest it later, the folks at Charles Schwab say your rate of return would have been 0.1% instead of six. That wouldn't have been good. Hope you didn't do it. Now, I get it. Most people are hardwired to want more of what gives them security and pleasure and to run away as fast as they can from the things that they feel cause them pain. Well, you mix those desires uh, to be in the herd and the feeling that there's safety in numbers, you get a pretty potent combination. When everyone else is buying, it feels like if you don't join them, you're going to get eaten by the financial version of a saber-toothed tiger. You know, that's that uh, fear of missing out that you may have heard about. Well, here, here's some things to kind of keep in mind. When in 20 years ago, in order for you to earn 7.5%, all you had to do was invest 100% into uh, bonds. 100% bonds, 7.5% return, and a very low uh, beta, very low fluctuation in price. 2005, you had to mix it up a little bit. You had to get a little private equity, some real estate, non-U.S. equity, U.S. large caps, and still 52% bonds. Now, that's, that mix would give you 7.5%, but your... Uh, um, risk factor went up by 30%. It's up at nine. The standard deviation was nine. Now, last year, two years ago now, it is 2020. In order to get that seven and a half percent, the portfolio had to be broken down 12% bonds, 33% large cap, 8% small cap, 20% international, 13% real estate, 12% private equity. <sighs> yeah. That's to get seven and a half percent, and your risk factor went up to seventeen percent. So, three times the risk over twenty years to get that same seven and a half percent. So, you need to know what you're doing in order to protect yourself from the market monster. And you know, so this uh, this uh, kind of run for the hills when the markets aren't doing well is not helpful for you when it comes to investing. Yeah, it's okay to feel some fear, some greed. I mean, okay, but acting on it is what will cause you financial harm. So do whatever you need to do to train yourself to not act on fear and greed. That can mean staying away from the market news, dare I say having an investment strategy, or even hiring an advisor. Whatever you need to do, like the Nike folks say, just do it. Now, please also understand that you're perceptions are shaped by your preconceptions. So how you see the world isn't determined by just what's there, but by what you expect to be there. To reiterate, an 8.5% average annual return since 1926, and again, that 
gets us to the 6.9% after inflation. That's pretty darn good. Now, if you earn 6.9% over these last 20 years, your total return would be 280%. I'll take that. Well, here's the kicker. These real returns aren't owed to anybody. They're earned the hard way. you got to be in the market. Remember that over all 10-year periods, the real rate of return for stocks has been positive 85% of the time. It's up 7 of every 10 years. Those are pretty good odds. However, if you're trying to, you know, uh, finesse the markets, uh, if you miss just the best 20 days of the 7,300 days that made up that 20-year period, because you can't convince that you should sell and then reinvest it later, Chuck Schwab, like I said earlier, one-tenth of one percent, not so good. Market doesn't owe you or anyone anything. It doesn't care you're about to retire or that you retired. It doesn't care that you have to fund your kid's education. It certainly doesn't care about your wants and needs and hopes and dreams. However, I absolutely believe, absolutely believe that stocks are the best long-term investment. I don't think there's a better way for most investors to grow their wealth. However, the price of admission can be gut-wrenching drawdowns and sometimes years with nothing to show for it. If you can accept this is the way markets work, you too can be an enormously successful investor. I appreciate your listening. Sorry for the uh, short time today, but we'll be back next week at our regular time. This is Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group. Thank you for listening. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small-company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results and there is always risk associated with investment.